Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we are in the part of the Joseph narrative uh, where we are coming to the the big moment uh, of Joseph coming out. What's happened before now? His family's starving in Canaan. They come down as is want, as they were wont to do in Canaan. When Canaan was having a drought, they would come down to northern Egypt. <coughs> Why is there not a drought in northern Egypt if there's a drought in Canaan? The Nile. The Nile. So Canaan is fed by rain. The Egyptian agriculture agricultural system was based on the Nile overflowing its banks uh, and so often there was food in Egypt when there was no food in Canaan so it was normal for people to come down and work in northern Egypt and or um, in this case because our family of Jacob is wealthy they just needed to be able to purchase food right so think of food lines in Russia it doesn't matter how wealthy you are if there's no food in the grocery store for you to buy with your wealth. So that's what's happening here. There's, there's nothing on the shelves. So they're coming down. They came down to, uh, they heard there was plenty of food in Egypt. Why was there plenty of food in Egypt? They had prepared because of Joseph's dream or interpreting the Pharaoh's dream. So in our case, there is actually a famine in Egypt as well. Usually, it could be different because of rain versus the Nile. But in our case, there's a famine in Egypt. But Joseph, having interpreted the Pharaoh's dreams correctly, saved uh, from the crops that had been healthy and, and extremely successful and saved food in silos in order to feed the population in the seven years of famine. We're in the seven years of famine. And there's food in Egypt because of Joseph. So the brothers know this. They come down with their money to buy grain. Joseph figures out who they are. He knows who they are. And so he says, I don't believe you. He asks a little bit about them. He figures out who they are. And then he says, I don't believe you that you're here to buy grain. I think you're spies. Here to spy on the military strength of Egypt. He acts as an Egyptian. He's, he's, yes, he is dressed as an Egyptian. He speaks in Egyptian with an interpreter. So he changed clothes again. He has been in this coat for a while now, but yes, he is, he has, he is once again in costume, right? For, for Joseph, it's, it's all about, right, clothing and, and what he looks like. We're going to read a little bit of Peter Pitzel and what he has to say about that. So, so this is a costume in a sense, but in another sense, it really is who Joseph is. Like Joseph is like the, the orphan. He just, he has no place that he fits. He's a stranger everywhere. He's a stranger to his brothers. He's a stranger in Egypt. You know, he's the second in command to Pharaoh, but really he's not Egyptian. I mean, he's really very much always out of place. It's more than a costume. It's like a disguise. In this case, it's definitely going to become a disguise. A costume may be existentially right. what it is. It's going to become a disguise. He's a similar soul in a way. Right. Misfit. Don't belong anywhere. Do what you got to do. Right? It's very much a Jewish story, the story of Joseph. Why would Joseph see 
these brothers. I can't imagine that everybody who's coming to purchase or work for food would have a meet and greet with Joseph. Either because they're wealthy, right? They're coming to procure a lot of grain. Presumably, Joseph is chief over the distribution system, so possibly he's checking on, right, the main distribution center. For some reason, right, he he encounters them. He's in charge of the entire system of distributing grain. Did he really think they were guys, or did he recognize that they were? He knew that he no he he uses this because he Benjamin's not with them. Benjamin is his only full brother. Who's Benjamin the son of? Rachel. Rachel. Rachel dies, giving birth to Benjamin. So Benjamin is with Jacob because Jacob won't let him go with them because he's already lost Joseph. And so he won't let Benjamin go. So Joseph says to them, prove to me you're not spies. Go get your youngest brother. You said there were 11 of you. Go get the youngest one and bring him here or we're not doing any business. So they purchase the grain. They're going back to get Benjamin. When they discover in their, on their way home, they discover the money they paid in their sacks of grain. So now it appears that they've stolen the grain. Whoa. <laughs> right. So Joseph instructed this to happen. Joseph instructed his people to put the money back in the grain sacks to flip the brothers out and to frame them. Yeah. So that's all happening. Now they got to convince Jacob to let Benjamin go with them, which they do. I'm catching us up to here. We're coming up to where we are right here. Um, and finally, finally, um, it's Judah who stands up and says, I will be surety for Benjamin. If something happens to me, like, I mean, something happens to him, you know, like you, my life is forfeit, essentially. Remember, in the intervening period, Judah has lost a couple of sons, right? The whole incident with Tamar Mm -hmm. has happened. So Judah's changed. Judah's grown. Judah gets why Jacob feels the way he does about Benjamin and and says, I will be surety for him. So he takes on, like legally takes on the role of protector whose life is forfeit if something happens to Benjamin. All right. So this is one of the longer stories in Torah, as you can see. Um, it takes up fully a quarter of the book of Genesis. Um, it is a novella inside Genesis. This is not just a you know a couple of episodes. This is a, an, an entirely structured novella that is stuck at the end of Genesis. All right, so we are at the point where Jacob says, okay, verse 14, may El Shaddai dispose the man mercifully towards you that he may release to you your other brother as well as Benjamin. Remember, Joseph keeps somebody as as mm-hmm. collateral that they, that they will return. Mm-hmm. All right. So here, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> this is the moment that um, they come back, right? Um, all right. Wait. Okay. So somebody start reading at fifteen. The men then took this offering of the silver, right? The offering is the silver? Uh, yeah. Okay. And taking in hand the double portion of silver, along with Benjamin, they got going and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the one in charge of his household, 
bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and prepare it, for these men are going to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph said. The man brought the men into Joseph's house. The men were frightened when they were brought into Joseph's house. They thought, it is on account of the silver that came back in our bags the first time that we're being brought here in order to fall upon us, to pounce on us, to take us as slaves along with our asses. They therefore approached the man in charge of Joseph's household and spoke to him at the entrance of the house, saying, By your leave, my lord, the last time we came down to buy food, when we got to the night lodging and opened our bags, each one's silver was in the mouth of his bag, the exact amount that had been weighed out. And we have brought it back with us, and we have brought other money to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our bags. He replied, You're all right. Have no fear. Your God and your father's God has given you a hidden treasure in your bags. Your money reached me. And he brought Simeon out to them. Okay. So they pack up. They take Benjamin. They make their way down to Egypt. So figure a couple of weeks. You know, I mean, it's, it's not like next day, right? You know, so they travel, they travel, they travel. Torah's not interested in the travel, in the journey, right? They, they get... They get to Egypt, and um, they present themselves, right, to the officials who represent Joseph. But Joseph sees that Benjamin is with them and says to his steward, steward, take them into my house and prepare an animal for we're going to have a feast. They're dining with me, right, at the big meal of the day. And so he does that. But you can imagine the brothers are freaking out. Like they show up. They've been framed for theft, and now they're being told they're being taken into the private palace of the vizier. They're just there to buy grain, right? So they're they're flipping out, um, and they think it must be because of the money that was in their sacks, and that he once they get into the palace, they won't leave the palace, right? That they'll be taken in as as uh, rob what do you thieves, um, or or their their person will be in exchange for the money, whatever it is they're convinced that they're going to forfeit their freedom. Yeah, right? Maybe they're thinking that... Same region. Same region, my friend. <laughs> same same origins. Same cultural origin. Maybe they think they're being rewarded for confessing that the money was in the bag. No. They are terrified. They say... He's going to attack us and seize us and fall upon us and make us slaves and then take all of our Hummers. So they're convinced this is bad, right? The humpers, the camels. Right, yes, the, the pack animals. How much time do you have any idea that has passed between the time that Joseph originally came to Egypt and this meeting like 20 years for sure they don't recognize him for sure he was a he was a young teenager he was like 13 and now 20 years have passed he's in his 30s and he's he's decked out imagine the eye makeup imagine the headdress like think ancient egypt very important person he's jewelry every you know gold jewelry everywhere he's dressed as a dignitary of Egypt, he's second in charge to Pharaoh. Right. But he so they have no reason to, to recognize him. But he knows who they are. Yes. There's 11 of them, right? Well, Their father's name is Jacob. Like, he asked about mm-hmm. them, and, and he, he recognizes them. Memory, then, of his past. 
Hmm? He has memory of his past. For sure. He was almost killed. For sure. They all right. They almost killed him. So if you want to talk about what stays in the brain, that right? Would. Anything around a trauma, right, yeah. goes like a dagger into the deepest part of the brain. Yeah. That's how we've survived, right? So um, for sure. Right. I was just thinking yeah. that you know over the years that passed, even physically he didn't change. For sure. For sure. He was a youth, and now he's a man. For sure. They have. Right. They think he's a slave somewhere, right? Because they sold him into slavery. Like, so, hundred percent, they don't know who he is. I mean, unless you want to, unless you want to be the rabbis and look at midrashim, right? Like, they're you know the rabbis are going to have a lot of midrashim. Maybe they knew, but we're not going there. All right. So. um so they go into so they go to Joseph's house steward because they want to confess about the money to head off any danger that someone thinks they're trying to get away with it. Right? They want to return the money. They want to get rid of it. They're desperate to get rid of the, of this silver. And they actually told the truth. And they told the truth, right? So we came down to procure food when we did that, when we were going back, we opened our bags and the money was in there. We don't know who put the money in our bags. They're freaking out about what he's about to say. And what he says is, don't know what you're talking about. I got your payment. You're, you know, your God must have arranged for you to get a nice little discount. <laughs> you got the grain for free. I got your payment. So they have to be a little confused, right? So Joseph is like... Yeah. He's playing. He's playing with them, right? He's setting them up to be anxious and fearful and as he was, off right. balance as he was to see what they will do. But we don't know that what that he's decided that yet. They could have. They could have just stayed home with the grain and the money and not and let Simeon. Correct. So that's correct. So test number one is: Will they come back for Simeon, and will they risk bringing Benjamin? Hundred percent. So we don't know if like he's done. We don't, we don't know what's happening in Joseph's mind, right? We don't know if he kind of thinks of this along the way, or if he's got all this mapped out. We Torah doesn't tell us. All right. So he, I got your payment, and he goes and he brings Simeon out. Okay, Bert. The men then ushered <clears throat> the men into Joseph's house. He supplied water, and they washed their feet, and he gave fodder to their asses. They laid out the offering for the arrival of Joseph at noon, for they had heard that they would eat food there. When Joseph entered the house, they presented to him the offering they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and said, How is your aged father of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they knelt and bowed down. He looked up and saw his full brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and he said, Is this your youngest brother you told me about? And he added, God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was so deeply stirred with tender warmth towards his brother that he wanted to weep. He went into an inner chamber, and there he wept. He washed his face, and when he came out, he held himself in check and said, Sir food! They served him separately and then separately, and the Egyptians who usually ate with him separately, for the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews since it was an abomination to the Egyptians. Go ahead. Yeah. 
As they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his seniority and the youngest according to his youth, the men looked at each other in amazement. He presented portions of fruit to them from what was in front of him. Benjamin's portion exceeded all of theirs fivefold, and they drank and grew drunk with him. All right. So they come into the house, and Simeon's with them, and they they are they put out everything that they're gonna you know give. They they've brought gifts for Joseph. Um, they they lay everything out um, because they've been told they're gonna be there right to eat at this huge banquet. And when Joseph comes home, they give him the gifts and they do the proper thing. They bow low to the ground, right, in in obeisance. He greets them. And the first thing he asks about is his father, mm-hmm. right? So h- how is your father of whom you spoke? What was your translation of the rest of that verse? Uh, is he still alive? Interesting. Very interesting. How is your aged father from Israel? Yeah, is he still alive? Okay, yeah. So, hashalom um, avichem. He's asking after the shalom of his father, mm-hmm. right? So in Hebrew, we still say mashlomcha. How's your shalom? That's how you ask about someone's well-being. So mashlomcha. He asks after the shalom of his father, and um, then some commentators want to say he ca- he catches himself that he's he's tripped up. Because how how does he know that Jacob's still alive, right? Like he he's making that assumption. How's dad? <laughs> you know, and it's like, uh, I mean, is your father still living? Yeah. Right, right. So he's so some people want to say he's kind of he gets it that he he almost exposed too much, but whatever. He asks after his father because you can imagine he is desperate to know about his father. And they said he's still in good health. And they bow again, maybe because they're they're acknowledging how gracious it is of the vizier of Egypt to ask after their father. Um, and so then he looks around and he, his eyes find Benjamin, right? His only full sibling who he has not seen since presumably Benjamin was little. Um and when he realizes, right, he says, is this your youngest brother, right, to, to be sure that this is Benjamin, and they acknowledge that it is, and he immediately, right, offers words of blessing to Benjamin, may God be gracious to you, and with that, he leaves the room, this is a very rare occurrence in Torah, that we get any mention of someone's emotional state, it is very, very rare in Torah, um, so it tells us like it's a big, this is a big deal that Torah's writing this for us. Um, usually Torah's not interested in what people are feeling. It, it's about what's happening. And so, I mean, that's a, it's a Western modern approach to be concerned with the inner life of the character in terms of what you write about. You might discuss it around the campfire, like what was Sarah feeling or you know, what was up in Hagar, right? They might talk about it, but, but when you wrote that material down, it was not, they were not interested in the inner life of the characters. So that we get this, this sense that he is completely overwhelmed. So he has to leave the room because it says, if I cash leave coat, he was, he was a fixin' to cry. <laughs> right? 
That's the closest I can get in English. He was fixing to cry. Here it says he was deeply stirred with tender warmth. Rachmav. So actually it is Nichmeru Rachmav. His his compassion, his Rachmanis was heated up. Al Achiv towards his brother, Vayivak Heshlifkot, and he was fixing a cry. And so he goes to another room, Vayev Kshama, and he weeps in this that all, room. According to the text, has to do with Benjamin. Yes. This is his... But, but I can imagine that the whole thing yeah. is, you know, being, being an adoptee, like, if my birth family were to just show up in front of me, I mean, you know, like he hasn't seen them in 20 years, and I mean, so it's just he's got to be just like all over the place. But yes, when he sees Benjamin, that does it. Like he just he can't hold it together. He, he was a real person experiencing real, real emotion. He, it's got to be very complicated. They tried to kill him. His last vision of them was them looking in the pit at him. Right, and then you know, selling him into slavery. So I mean, it's got to be so incredibly mixed at this moment. And Benjamin was innocent, so he is the only. And so, figure Benjamin and Dina are the only two siblings who are innocent, and he's not seeing Dina; she's not there. Right, so um, yeah. So Benjamin is the only one to whom he has an unadulterated love for, both because it's Rachel's other son. Remember, Benjamin's birth kills Joseph's mother. That has to be a complicated relationship. Is it love, but also longing to go on? I think there's so much. We, we, we could cover both sides of this board, I think, with, yes, with, with what's happening to Joseph right now in this Didn't moment. did he have a, a dream that his brothers would bow down to Of course, him? of course. That's what got him in and trouble. They keep, and they keep on bowing down to him. <laughs> right? It's like, well, because we know, we who know the story know when he says that, that what's going to happen, right? And the irony that now he's in control. They were in control in his previous situation. He's in control now. Right. And he's got to be feeling a sense of joy in that. They can't hurt him now. I would uh, But when... I think when you got to be there. So when one confronts one's abuser, and now one is safe from the abuser, I don't... Well, it wouldn't be joy. I don't... Yeah, I don't know. Like, relief... For sure, yes. but he's been safe from them for 20 years. Um, now he's confronted with them and all that that brings up in terms of when he wasn't safe, I must imagine. But it wouldn't bring up love for them necessarily. For Benjamin, yes. Dina, right, so we, we don't know. Like he, We don't know. that. That's, that's, I think, the beauty of this moment is that there's so much going on and we all we know is that he's overwhelmed. The tears could be relieved. Exactly. He's got to go cry. Mm-hmm. All right, I see several hands. Audrey? Were Benjamin and Dina born after Joseph left? It was, was Calvin. The they were still there. They were there when he Yes. <laughs> Robert? But Benjamin was the innocent one. But does he know of Joseph? Hmm? Does he know of Joseph? Well, I'm, I think what he knows is that he had an older brother who was ripped apart by animals. But there's one of the things you mentioned earlier uh, that's going on for sure. And he set a trap. He set this most difficult trap, the most important trap you could imagine, because 
the, the brothers said, oh, please don't make us bring Benjamin. I mean, this big long tale about nothing. It'll is kill so, our father. It'll kill our father to death. I mean, no, this, because, I mean, he, he worked very hard to make this as big a test as he could think to make it. You don't, and they brought him. So, it was setting, it was, it took Travis almost the wrong word, it was a test to see if these people changed. I can't think of any better way to test whether they will change, whether they're going to leave Simeon and then go, come back and bring Benjamin. Right. And it ain't over. Which they did. It ain't over. (laughs) Right? So, like, has he mapped all of it out or is he thinking about this at each stage we don't know but it ain't over yet so he didn't have to have anything to do with it though huh he was he didn't have to have anything to do with them he could have just of sold course. them the grain and but that's forget not, it and that's never not seen the story again. <laughs> right. no 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 there's a story I mean, there he like, chose no what i'm saying is he chose he chose to engage with them yes what i'm saying that's the story yeah. that's the whole of course or else there's no drama if you're a victim if you're a victim you get a chance to confront your the abuser the abuser you want to do that you want to see particularly after 20 years right so here we go let's so let's go so he so he yes he sets it up so that he's going to totally screw with them right so what does he do? They come into the house. He tells the, his people to serve the meal. They will be eating separately. Mm-hmm. They are eating alone. The Egyptians are eating alone. And Joseph is eating alone. So the Egyptians won't eat with Hebrews because that is toeva. That's an abomination to the Egyptians. So it just shows that abomination is in the eyes of the culture, right? You know, we always get all flipped out when we see abomination, abomination in the Torah. Well, guess what? The Egyptians have the exact same word, the exact same taboo associated with certain things. So, um, so they won't sit with the Hebrews. So they're sitting alone. They're seated and their seats are assigned and their seats are assigned from oldest to youngest. Yeah. They look around the table and go, uh, this is weird, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. How, did, how are they seated by the Egyptians in birth order? Right. How do they know? And then when Benjamin's food comes, he is served five times as much food as the rest of the, right? He, he gets the fillet part of the T-bone, <laughs> right? Like it, it's very obvious that he's being favored but they have to be looking at each other going, what up? This is just, it's, get, it's gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. Like they are just like, they have to be freaking out. Like they, it's getting worse. Like they, the music comes. Yeah, right? The violins. So they're freaking out. And, um, and, but they have no choice but to behave as if they are honored to be in the house of the, the palace of the vizier being served a banquet. So they eat and they drink. They're, they're going to do what they have to do to act like they're at the party. They're not stupid, right? All right. So then 44. Well, it's, it's, um, it's more like, so it, 
They, they drank alcohol with him. So what it's saying is, if you go to a cocktail party and someone says, can I get you a drink? The only right answer is yes. Yeah. Right? I mean, now I guess politically you can say, I don't drink. But, but, but right. traditionally, if it's a, if it's a banquet and there's wine and there's whatever alcohol, I don't know that it's wine, that it's alcohol, what it's saying is they had to participate. Yes. They knew they had to. It, it's, it's, I don't know what I'm saying, but it's like if you go to a Druze village and they offer you tea or coffee, you say yes. Mm-hmm. Saying no is an insult mm-hmm. to your host. It's not about they wanted to. It's about they know they have to. Yes. Hmm? <laughs> they need a drink. They're like making a double. <laughs> Bert, 44. Oh, afterward, he commanded the one in charge of his household, saying, Fill the men's bags with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his bag. And put my goblet, the silver goblet, in the mouth of the youngest one's bag, along with silver for his grain. He did just as Joseph instructed. At morning light, the men were sent off, they and their asses. They had left the city, but had not gone far, when Joseph said to the one in charge of his household, Get going, pursue the men. When you overtake them, say to them, Why did you repay good with evil? This is what my master drinks from, and with which he constantly practices divination. Have you not caused harm by what you have done? He overtook them and spoke all these words to them, and they said to him, Why is my Lord speaking such words? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Look, we brought you back the silver that we found in the mouth of our bags all the way from the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? Let anyone caught with it among your servants die, and we for our part will become my Lord's slaves. He replied, Yes, right away, just as you say, so shall it be. But while he who is caught with it shall be my slave, the rest of you shall be cleared. They hastened to lower their bags to the ground, and each opened his bag. He began searching with the eldest and ended with the youngest until he found the goblet in Benjamin's bag. They tore their mantles. Each then reloaded his ass, and they went back to the city. All right. They just had this lovely banquet. Everybody's had a little to drink. Everybody's feeling pretty good. They got their grain, they're going home, they got Simeon, they got Benjamin, right? So, right? Um, Joseph's like, fill their bags with food as much as they can carry, meaning all of their donkeys can carry, right? Like, it's a huge amount of grain, but put my special silver goblet in Benjamin's sack. And their money. So once again, they're going to discover right, their money, but it's w- way worse this time. So in the first thing in the morning, they have their pack animals, everything's loaded, and they had not gotten far out of the city before Joseph's steward, right, says, go get them, go, you know, and search their bags because my master's divination cup is gone. So it doesn't, we're not, we don't know if Joseph is actually practicing divination or if he just knows that Egyptians do that and so they're going to assume he does. Um, so whether it's you know, hydromancy, oleomancy, the using um, water or oil, you know, you, you have one substance in the cup and you add another substance and then you read the, the surface. Like tea leaves. Yes. 
so um, so so we don't know. But some, some of the rabbis get a little nervous about. Oh my God, was Joseph practicing divination? God forbid. So um, so <laughs> so he says, how could you repay my master like this? Right? That's just. That's just terrible. Like he treated you so well and feasted you. And how could you repay him like this? And, okay, so, all right, I need to stay focused. Okay, so, and they're like, what are you talking about? Why, what are you talking about? We would never do anything like that, right? We brought back the money that we found in our sacks. If we wanted to steal from you, we would have done it already. Like what? We came here to give you back your money. Why would we now take somebody's cup? What are you talking about? So much so that they say, you know what? Whoever, if somebody here has the cup, right? His his life is forfeit. And, uh, okay. So whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, Right? The rest of us will become your slaves because we didn't take it. So out comes that statement. And of course, then they search, they put their bags down and the guy says, nope, the only person who will be dealing with any problems is the person who has the cup. They lower their bags and it is found in Benjamin's sack. So now... Right, you can imagine. Like this is the absolute worst thing that could happen is that something's gonna happen to Benjamin. It's the worst. This is absolutely the worst. Alright, fourteen. Judah <clears throat> Judah and his brothers entered Joseph's house. He was still there. They fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Did you not know that a man like me constantly practices divination? God forbid. (laughs) Judah replied, What can we say to my Lord? How speak and how justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and the one who was caught with the goblet in his possession. But he said, Far be it from me to do this, The man in whose possession the goblet was found, he shall be my slave, and the rest of you go up in peace to your father. So, notice, so notice, notice what they've done here. What did they say? They said, if you find it, then let whoever is found with it die. And the rest of us will become your slaves voluntarily. <coughs> what do they say here when they're before Joseph? We'll be slaves. That they'll all be slaves. We'll all be your slaves. Don't kill him. Don't kill him. They they don't dare say, but they're gonna they're gonna zip it about having ever said anything about dying. Right, right. No dying. Slaves, slaves. No dying. Right. So, so they say we're gonna be your slaves. Joseph wasn't there when they said. Let the one found with it die. He all he hears is right. We're going to be your slaves, and he says, Mm-mm, "I would. I'm, I'm a man of honor. I'm the vizier of Egypt. I would never, ever take free people into slavery who haven't done anything. Right? <laughs> Only Benjamin. The rest of you are free to go. And when he says free to go, <laughs> right? It doesn't mean free to go. Right? It means I'll be keeping Benjamin. You need to leave. Time to go." Tanago, as we say where I'm from. Tanago. So, Torah leaves us there. 
This is the end of a Parsha. Torah leaves us here. No idea like what's going to be, but we have this moment, this, this incredibly tension-filled, dramatic moment where Joseph is still disguised and he has set up the ultimate test for them. I'm going to take Ben. I'm going to keep Benjamin. The rest of you need to get out of here while you can. But what I would get is, if if he wants to get revenge against the the, the bad brother and he has nothing against Benjamin, why is he going to put Benjamin through this horrific experience of having these guys come out and say, uh, you know, we found this cup in your bag, and he brings him back, even if it was to reconnect with Benjamin in some way. He's still putting him through this horrific experience for someone who's done nothing to him. He's really getting back. Well, but he, what's he doing to Benjamin? Even just for that time from riding back from Canaan to Egypt, which may be days or weeks or whatever, he's in absolute fear of his life. And this is a guy who's done nothing to him. Or he could be waiting for them to leave, and then he says to Benjamin, "Benjamin, I'm your brother. It's us two against them." But, but what I hear, what I hear is, it's still traumatic for Benjamin right. to be no, no, framed, right? right? That's going to be the setup here. <laughs> so even if that's his intention, right? So the question is, why would he put Benjamin, traumatize Benjamin like that? Answers. But brothers know that that's the way. That that's the thing that's going to kill their father. So it seems, I, I think. Whenever you have a screwed up family dynamic and and somebody's and somebody's I know we wouldn't know anything about that in this room, but whenever you have a really messed up family dynamic and there's trauma, nobody's safe. Nobody comes out unscathed. Joseph's behavior, he doesn't worry about Benjamin's feelings. He needs to get at his brothers, he needs to go to do the thing that will kill his father to see what they do. Take the most precious thing his father has, his full brother, which they could resent also the way they resented him. Because um, we, don't, we don't know that Joseph knows why they hated him. We know because he was a brat. <laughs> and he kept saying, you're going to bow down to me. Right? But he doesn't know that. Maybe, maybe they hate him because he's Rachel's son, the favorite wife's son. And so maybe they hate Benjamin too. Right? So... I just think when there's this much trauma and this much drama, people get hurt who are innocent. And Joseph is not well. Joseph is not whole. Joseph is is scarred. Joseph is scarred. He's broken. He's damaged. And he winds up possibly traumatizing Benjamin. But his intention is revenge. His intention is not. I don't think his intention is revenge. I don't. I think his intention is to see who they have become. Put what is teshuva? Teshuva isn't accepted. You're not forgiven for a sin, say the rabbis, until you are put in exactly the same position to do exactly the same sin, and you don't do it. That's when teshuva is complete. Joseph is looking for, under the exact same circumstances, right? That or even worse, he's made it even more intense. Right, that that you all's your lives are in danger if you don't get out of here, because you you've been associated with a crime against me personally. Um, it, he has set it up that it's they should leave, right? Like if they're at all like who they were, they would leave. He sets it up to see have who have these men become. 
what did what they do did to him will they do it teach again? them that, did they learn from that did they change will they do it again putting them in serious danger and saying all you have to do is leave me Benjamin and you're fine that's all you have to do the rest of you are free can we not see this as a rescue of the other favorite son because he, he probably sympathizes with Benjamin and he wants to rescue him from these I mean, I think for sure we know he feels desperately, tenderly towards Benjamin. Um, there's this moment where Benjamin thinks he's about to <laughs> lose his freedom. That's got to be traumatic. And maybe it's worth it for Joseph, right? If he's, if he's afraid for Benjamin's life, maybe it's worth it. Maybe he just doesn't care because he too is just broken and traumatized. Mark? Uh, it goes on to say in 16, what can we say to my Lord? God has found out the inequity of your servants. They're confessing. They they they've been caught red-handed. They can't. But this use the word God. God has found out. I'm just wondering. I get the confession. Mm-hmm. What can we say? God has found out. Because that that's it, it's typical language that the gods know. Like God knows the truth. Like I, I mean it. I, I don't. Th- I don't think it's as pointed as it might seem on the page to us. The effect is strong. to say that it, yeah. that God knows. If you, say, uh, if you say something on your behalf, it's not as much worth as God is. The inequity of your service is, is that. I'm just confused by this. Okay. Does that mean they acknowledge that they didn't treat him properly? N- no. They, they they've been caught with the cup. Right. They're trying to take responsibility for the theft to get it off of Benjamin. So we are your servants, Joseph, right. master. We are your servants. And and clearly, we messed up. So we are forfeiting our freedom. Right? Because they're afraid of what's going to happen to Benjamin. And he says, mm-mm, nice try. I know what you're doing. Right? No, I'm keeping Benjamin. Y'all are free to go. Yeah. You are dismissed. That's exactly what's being set up. Is that they would have to go home and say, um, "Dad." Maybe is it possible that, that Joseph is just angry, so angry at Jacob for not protecting Joseph? So it is a he wants to punish Jacob by keeping Benjamin. It is a very interesting dynamic. That yeah. does Joseph hold? Jacob, Jacob responsible Jesus. at all for anything? My father didn't protect me, but I from mm-hmm. we, we don't, you know, we we do not. We it's one has to imagine, right, that there's levels of all of this happening, um, and or he could be idealizing Jacob, the father that he didn't get to grow up with. He was orphaned. Why would he idealize him? Because we don't have any indication that Jacob did anything except adore Joseph and fawn all over him and give him a tunic and adored him and loved him and 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 and, and, and that's kept him close to him and does Joseph realize that behavior got him thrown into the pit? Don't know. But Joseph seems to understand. We've seen in other places. Joseph says he's going to say at the end of the story, "I was put here." to save you. Uh, all of this happened so that I could save you from famine. 
And so Joseph, so Joseph gets to that place. What he, he sends for Jacob. He wants Jacob to come down and live with him. So we don't have an indication that he feels anything except love and, and a, and a missing of Jacob, right? He got, his father got taken from him. His father who doted on him, his son rose and said on him is taken from him. Keeping Benjamin would convince Jacob to come to Egypt. Well, he, he comes out to them. He, he comes out to them way before any of that happens. Well, as you said, you, you, you've said a couple of times <clears throat> that Joseph is broken and flawed, and yes, there clearly is that, but there's the flip side of it, too, in, in my mind, that, that through all that's happened to him, he never lost faith in himself. He never forgot the dream. Uh, He's prospered, and he's pro- he prospered because he didn't just end up feeling sorry for himself the whole time. So, my sense is that it, it sort of wouldn't occur to him that this, since he's always been so successful, that this plan that he sets up, this test that he sets up, keeping Benjamin, would have a bad outcome because he didn't intend that. He just he wouldn't. He, he's a positive thinking guy in a lot of ways about the outcome. I'm not as optimistic as you are that okay. he feels that way. I, and I don't think it's mutually exclusive that he never lost faith in himself, that he dug deep, that he made his life a life of meaning. Right? I don't think it's mutually exclusive that he's not traumatized and broken. And many, many of us are driven to do what we do and make our lives what they are because of early trauma and because of an ongoing relationship to that pain. Um, so I think they can both be there. Yes. It's, re- it's remarkable that he maintains this attitude and he, and he rises every time like a Phoenix from the ashes. Um, I think for me, it's, this test is really poignant it's a real I think it's a real test I think he really wants to know I think he wants to have a relationship with them but he has to know that they are that they've changed yeah but the the point I was making was that he just would there was a question of what he was he worried about Benjamin safety Benjamin and that's where I was coming from saying he, he, I don't think he would, he would have just said, no, no, that's not my intention. It's not going to happen. You know, it's, it's going to be fine with Benjamin. The test was elsewhere. Right. Well, I think oh, that okay. um, people, and I can think of things in my life, when pushed to the wall, and it's a matter of uh, saving this or saving that, it could be money, it could be psychological, he's pushed to the wall, you, you sacrifice someone to get what you want. And good, well-meaning people can be put in such a situation where they do that. The extreme is in concentration camps, you know, when one person, one Jew, steals the food from another Jew, or, or whatever. It, it, you, you're put into a situation where you do things. You but, never would but, he's, but he's, so yes, what we said earlier that Benjamin might just be collateral damage. There's mm-hmm. things more important to Joseph right now than what Benjamin's feeling. But. He he orchestrates this. He's not pushed to the wall, mm-hmm. right? He the psychological wall. He all he, this, with his brothers. It just brings it all back. So he, okay. So like we said, maybe Benjamin is collateral damage. Okay, because of what's going on for Joseph. Okay. So I wanted. I know this sounds crazy. Um, so what do we have? We have a divination cup, theft. The brothers say. Let whoever it's found with die. Yeah? All right. 
Go back to Genesis 31. Thirty-one. No, 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 no. Good question. Yes, yes, yes. 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 Thirty-one, thirty-one. Yeah, thirty-one, thirty-one. Thirty-one, thirty-one. No. No. Your father is thirty-one, thirty. Thirty-one. It's got to be earlier than thirty-one, thirty-one, right? All right. Thirty-one, nineteen. Genesis 31, verse 19. I have been studying Torah, as I've told you before, for 27 years as an adult. And I never put these two things together. It's only because I was teaching you all this stuff from Mesopotamia, and I thought, how sad that I didn't get to do Rachel and the Trafim with them. So I thought, well, maybe we'll get through the Joseph stuff, and then, like, we'll talk a little bit so I can just, like, wrap it up with them about all these women and the Mesopotamian perspective. And, 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 and so I start, and I'm like, whoa, 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 what? Meanwhile, Laban had gone to shear a sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Jacob kept Lavan the Aramean in the dark, not telling him that he was fleeing. And he fled with all he had. So they are on the road. She has taken the family gods because if we read this from a Mesopotamian women's perspective, she's the youngest daughter. She would have inherited the mother's cultic status and she would have inherited the idols that were used in cultic practice. she's She's taking what's hers. Rachel's taking what she believes, if we're reading it like we have been from a Mesopotamian perspective, she's taking, because she's not Israelite. She's Canaanite. She's Mesopotamian. She's taking the cultic hardware that that she needs to to do what she needs to do in her household as the priestess. So they're fleeing, right? And then, of course, Lavan catches up to them, right? Mm -hmm. 25, Lavan overtook Jacob. 26, and Lavan said to Jacob, like, what is going on? Why did you flee in the middle of the night and mislead me? Right? You didn't even let me say goodbye to my family, blah, blah, blah. 31, Jacob answered Laban saying, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. But anyone with whom you find your gods shall not remain alive. Joseph sets up the test to be exactly what happened to his mother. Dang. Dang, they're good. So let anyone, Jacob says, let anyone with whom your household gods are found die. Joseph says the, I mean, they say the exact same thing because thinking it's not possible because we didn't do it, right? What? Is there some commentary about um, 
Rahel took the trophim and something of divination, and the cup was also used for divination. That's exactly where I'm going, right? So she has them, she puts them in a camel bag because she hears Laban coming to search the tents, and she sits on the camel bag, right? And then when he comes in, and she says, sorry, father, and she's got to be afraid. Like, if he finds them, she's in deep, deep doo-doo. So she's sitting on them, and when he comes in to search her tent, right, she's got to be freaking out, and she says, I'm sorry, forgive me for not rising before you, father, but the way of women is upon me. And then he's like, ew, (laughs) I'm out of here, right? Because it had all kinds of you know, yeah, all kinds of taboo, all kinds of stuff around that. Still does in some ways, right? Um, but but certainly then it had cultic implications. So he's like, ew, I don't even want to be in the same tent, like right. So he goes out. So she, so she's sitting on the trophim. She's sitting on this this hardware that is about cultic practice, and that's exactly what Joseph puts in Benjamin's sack, is what they would perceive to be his hardware for his own. These are the trophim of their private household. These are their private gods. What does he put in Benjamin's sack? His own private divination cup. I have never linked those two things before, but I don't think there's any way to ignore the exact parallel that his mother right goes through this, and when he wants to set up a test for his brothers right about how they're going to treat Rachel's only other son, he sets up exactly a parallel scenario to what his mother had. Hmm? How would his mother how would you know about Rachel? Well, possibly Rachel bragged about it. Possibly it became a family legend. Remember that time we were running away from my brother? And I took the trophy and he thought he had me? <laughs> right? Meanwhile, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Yeah. Yes. But then they're talking about dying, whoever sees die. So there's another connection. Okay. Um, so possibly Rachel bragged about it. But even if even if Joseph doesn't know that story, we do. <laughs> but I've never before put them together. And that's never come up in the... I've never heard you any connection. You need to write. You've done it. I said to Judy, I said, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Now maybe it's out there, but like I've never heard that. Don't tell anybody. Shh. I'm going to turn off my microphone. So, you learn politics at home. Father, mother, whoever, whomever you are, you know, idolize with. And in that case, uh, he's learning politics from his mother. How do you interpret that? And not the politics of his father. He goes for her line, for her style. How do you see that? I think if we think about this in the terms that we've been looking at all of these women, um, I think Joseph is very close to his mother. And, and, And early in his life, she only has one son. Her whole life, she only has one child. She has one heir. Mm-hmm. Like we've been talking about heirs and right and and the, and the heir's relationship to the yeah. priestess or the mother, right? And so um, she has one heir. So in her mind, Joseph's the one who will inherit. Like so, she you can imagine she's teaching him and relating to him as her heir. And 
of course, she winds up being pregnant again and having a second son, but doesn't live to is it just to raise him. Look at the Mesopotamian culture and just say that this stealing a god is the ultimate sin. So Joseph didn't need to know this story to understand the culture that he came. I think it's the opposite. I think I think Rachel isn't stealing anything. That's the patriarchal oh, reconstruction. Uh, the Mesopotamian story. Rachel's are taking as well. Taking is Rachel is taking what is hers. She's taking what is rightfully hers because she's the youngest daughter. She would have inherited it from her mother. Her mother's gone. We don't see her mother in the story. Presumably she's dead. So so Rachel's take as she's going to leave and build another household mm-hmm. with Jacob separate from Laban. She's got to take the trophim. She's the cultic leader of the house. She, they're hers. Might this prove that the person who concretized this, these two stories was the same person? Hundred percent. I think there's. I think the material absolutely is related. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. So it's. You know. I mean. I, I would have to break down the the source material by um, documentary hypothesis. I don't know what source. Get going. <laughs> what source that is? Right. Get on it. Mm-hmm. Well, the rabbis are very worried about it, right? So because we know Mesopotamian tradition, we don't have to worry. Like we're fine. But the rabbis were very upset. Why would she want them? Why would she need them? So of course they have to defend her. But God forbid she should be using them. So they say she's trying to save Laban from idolatry. <laughs> so she takes them in order to keep Laban from being an idolater, um, which which is a, which is great. If you're the rabbis and you have to defend what she's doing and not have her any have any good relationship to the trafim, then it, that's great. But you know that's clever. But uh, but of course. We don't need to buy that, right? We don't. We don't need to excuse Rachel. Like we, I really believe that's an origin story of her having inherited those trophim from her mother, and that she's taking that. Even if, forget Mesopotamia. I mean, I, I just think she takes them because they're hers. Um, and but but Torah certainly understands that Laban had a claim to them because they use the word steal. Torah uses the word steal. She stole them. But that could be because she was leaving and couldn't ask permission. So, you know, so took them or couldn't say to him, you know, those are mine. Right. You know, so, so maybe that's what stealing means. Torah is the patriarchal language. But the patriarchal language of Torah says she stole them. Um, and there was another one about um, there's another commentary Midrash that says she took them so that Laban couldn't use them in divination to find out where they were. <laughs> right, so that she's afraid Laban will use them to find them because they're, they, they're running away. But that would mean, that would suggest that she believes they're effective. Right, so that which is also a problem. So that that's a problem. So that's not that's not the usual interpretation, right? Because it, that means she thinks they're actually they can be used in, in divination to find uh, as a GPS. Uh, Say what? These guys, Rachel's guys, once you took, just exit the story. They're gone. They have no continuing narrative. No. They're just gone. Yeah, but most things are just gone, right? Right, we don't, we don't usually hear. 
Right, but we would, we would have no reason to hear about the Trafim after this, right? We're not, we don't get descriptions of scenes in the house where, you know, where they would have been um, used. I think your point about the Torah not describing people's feelings on these stories is so poignant. Because even though it doesn't describe them, they're so rich in the story. Right. Right. It sets up a lot of drama, but doesn't then explore right, right what what the implications of that is. Right. All right. So look at two eighteen. Second, that second paragraph. Joseph is not ready. Right. Joseph is not ready to reveal himself to them. So this is at the height of our right story that just, just happened. But our anticipation of this great revelation is wedded by their arrival, by the arrival of the brothers. He, quote, acted like a stranger and spoke harshly to them when he originally encounters them. The phrase acted like a stranger announces his assumption of a theatrical part, but the part that he plays is paradoxically the part that he has been living, for he has been the stranger all along. The harshness he feigns is linked to a harshness he feels. In this moment, he must recognize anew that he is an outsider, both to the culture of his birth and to that of his assimilation. In Joseph, we revisit the myth of the stranger, not as the God-called nomad who belongs nowhere, but as the orphan of history. Right, so Jacob might be you know, people might be wandering, and they're kind of the embodiment of the stranger. But but there's a myth about you know God calls them, and they're called into wandering. We'll think about Moses, right? The hero story where he's like, and Peter Pitzula is saying, not for Joseph. Joseph, this is not a myth like that. This is about him being an orphan of history. Um, and so many of the heroes or the leading characters. And the stories are orphans in one one 100%. Disguised, Joseph further disguises himself. He pretends ignorance, feigns a part. The suspense of the ensuing drama builds as we await the disclosure of his identity, the moment when he throws off his acting and lets his brother see that he is under the trappings only Joseph. Long lost, now found. From this moment forward until the point when he can sustain the part no longer, Joseph is both an actor and an improvisational dramaturge, a psychodramatist, if you will, who sets scenes, lays plots, devises ordeals for his unwitting brothers. Using his immense power, he stages their reality. Ironically, however, Joseph is unaware of a larger drama that enfolds him and within which he acts a part beyond the one he conceives. A greater power is moving in and through him. Though we are reading the myths of a culture with no formal theatrical conventions, we are in the presence of a profoundly theatrical imagination. There is a dizzying sense of plays within plays. As he acts the stranger, the soundless turning of hidden gears, the duceps machina, begins to act on him and moves him toward atonement. So Joseph is acting. He's the one setting everything up. He's the great puppet master. But of course, the author, we know, because we're coming from the omniscient narrator's perspective, we know there's a bigger puppet master 
than Joseph even knows. Even though Joseph has a relationship with God, we know that. He says, you know, all this power comes from God to interpret dreams. So it's not, I'm not saying he doesn't have a relationship with the divine, but, but he's, he's so clear that he's the one making all this happening and, you know, and, and tur- turning all the gears. And it's like what Peter Pitzel is saying is we, the reader, know mm-mm, you're playing your own part in a drama that you didn't write. So when I said that he was rejoicing in control over the situation, he may have been, but the atonement came later realizing he was not in control. And I guess that's where all atonement comes from. Right? So that atonement begins as Joseph stages a theater of revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course he's going to move. Does Pitzola say Joseph has an epiphany here, or is it just he's a puppet being... Right now, he thinks he's in control and manipulating everything, and Peter Pitzel is saying, but Joseph doesn't realize he's actually being used by God for God's own purposes, right? You know, that he's he's not in control, right, of everything. Um, go to 219. And this, like, so Pitzel is, like, looking at all the intricacies of, right, the brothers return home and tell their father everything that has occurred, right? But so attached is the old man to his youngest son that only after all their rations are exhausted will Jacob finally part with Benjamin. And then with the greatest fear and reluctance, the brothers return with him to ransom Simeon. So, like, he's... Pitzel is exploring like all the incredible like tensions and and loves and sadnesses and and Jacob's love for Joseph in some ways destroyed Joseph. Right. And now Jacob hasn't learned anything. It seems Jacob is hanging on to Benjamin as the beloved. Right. The same way he held on to Joseph. So like Joseph has grown. Because he was separated from that. Right. right? Who knows what Joseph would have become had he stayed under his father's constant adoration. Right. Um, but he's separated from that. And it seems that Jacob continues to do the same thing with Benjamin and probably even worse because of what happened to Joseph. Right. Um, and so Pitzel is lifting up like there's so many crevices in which there's like deep stuff going on that um, that if when we when we look at this text we have to imagine all of that is, is there before Joseph comes out. Is that possibly why the Torah for this one time has made this reference to uh, Joseph's sadness, his grief, but it brings it brings it into the personal? Is that part, part of what this is? Saying? So what so what what are you saying? Well, I'm just trying to figure out, you said that the, the Torah never, yeah, rarely talks about emotions, and in this case they are, so it is. So it's setting, I don't know, I'm not sure, I'm just trying to find out what is the correlation to the Torah separating this so, so succinctly. Um, I think, I mean, I think it says something about the intensity of this situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have cried, we've had Hagar. Like, when are the moments we get something about emotion? Hagar's son dying, and she's howling, right, in anguish, right? So those are, those are the moments Torah seems to, to, like, give us crying, weeping, you know, and, and, and this, is, this, is, this is an incredibly, I think Torah using it here is a way for it to really 
punch it that Joseph is, is absolutely overcome. I think it's about the intensity of this for Joseph that Torah uses weeping here, you know, and and being overcome. That he, the Torah tells us that is like a really strong, really strong indicator about how intense it is. Say meaning meaning that there seem to be two issues. One is he's trying to get um, a situation of revenge, which is best served cold. Um, sorry, um, but but the other thing is that he is emotionally devastated. He sees how his brothers are. Maybe they've grown. Maybe they. Uh, lamented that they uh, dumped him into a pit. Uh, so there seems to be two different sorts of things. You don't um, weep and mourn if you're trying to get revenge. So there's, I'm just having difficulty to see which yeah. side is to come down. I don't think Joseph is getting revenge. I, I, I think there is a part of him that wants to hurt them. Right, and if and if there's revenge here, that's it. That he's now in control, he now has power, and he he screws with them, right? So and he hurt he hurts them, right? He you know he gets them all worked up and all flipped out, and so I think there that is the element of revenge if there is one. I think his ultimate goal is reunification, mm-hmm. and his ultimate goal is to is to come back together with them but he's got to work through so much stuff to get there and and the 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 biggest point he has to get to is are they worthy of of reunify of I don't want to unify with them if they'd leave Benjamin here if they're the same people that did that to me then I, then screw them I don't want who needs that right but if they've changed over 20 years then and, and looking at them, they must be different, you know, like in some ways. And if they've really changed, then he, I think he really, really longs for unification. Remember, he's been orphaned. His mother dies giving birth to his brother. And then he's, his father's taken from him. And, you know, so he's, I think he's searching. He's really searching for a way to, to fill that gap. That's a form of a teshuva. Linda? I'm not sure that revenge is the right word. I think it's more anger. And, and there's a difference, at least in my mind. The anger is his emotional feeling, whereas revenge is what he's been plotting and planning to get back at them. Not this, That's different from testing them to see if they can. And he wants his own emotional um, feelings to also be... <coughs> I think it's just yeah. I mean, I think it's really torture. He's tortured. He's tortured. I, I don't. Th- it's not simple. Right? I don't think it's you know this or it's that or so. I, I think it's a mess. It doesn't get messier than this. And 
all of it's going on. Love, fear, anger, a desire for revenge, but I'm not going to hurt them, but I'm going to play with them, but they'll think I'm going to hurt. I mean, it's just, it's like really, I don't think Joseph's clear about a lot of his motivation here, right? I think there's so much that's below the surface for all of us, but particularly, particularly family, right? And particularly family betrayal and trauma. And early childhood trauma. This is like a dream in action. Right? So Joseph, the great interpreter, is caught in his own drama, right? And he who's pulling all the strings is really serving the one capital O who's pulling all the strings. I think if it was pure revenge, he could just kill them. Yes. Right. Or he would just take Benjamin and say, yeah, you live with it now. See how it feels now. 100%. This is not a story of revenge. There may be a temptation, right, to to inflict suffering in in return, you know, but or out of his own suffering. But the, but this is definitely not a story about so is, is the revenge. Here that Joseph is a sick and confused human, <laughs> and it took God to change Joseph to make him welcoming and say, "I want to save the family." If God had intervened, Joseph could have discarded all of them and just kept it. Well, God doesn't exactly intervene. Right, Pitsula is saying that God is pulling the strings, um, but I, I think Joseph is confused. I think Joseph, I think this is the ultimate story of of how complicated our relationships are. Like I said, particularly when there's trauma, particularly when there's betrayal by family, and and what it means to try to figure out who we are and who we want to be outside of just reacting to that pain or the longing, right? Joseph is trying to figure out, I think, what he, who he wants to, to be in relationship to that, Sheldon. He wants to show his power over them, too. Cause he was sure, because he's... Well, of course. Of course. It's all there. It's all there. Because, look, the story wouldn't be nearly as interesting if he weren't this powerful. The story's interesting because he does have power to slaughter them all on site, right? He, that's what makes this so compelling is because he could and he doesn't, right? He could off with his head and then watch how they behave. All right, that brings me Simeon. Right? Like, he could if that's what this was really about. He could, But it's clear that, that what makes it compelling for me is that he could do that and it's all about his own trying to figure out with everything he could do what is he going to do? And who is he? And who is he? As much as Joseph is, is an interpreter of dreams, I also see him as, as a dreamer. If I were in his shoes, I would have waited for 20 years to set the scene up. I would have dream, dreamt about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He scripted it for a long time. He probably had visions about it. He's a writer. I mean, mm-hmm. He wrote he the scene, he set the scene, and he played it, he enjoyed it. But he... So he's right, like she said, like it says here, you know, and an improvisational dramaturge. Like he's he's an improvisational actor right now, going, whoa, okay, right? He's the dreamer. He's the creative. Uh, imagine he has an imagination, right? And um, and so possibly he has fantasized. If they were to show up here tomorrow, right? Like I used to fantasize as a kid. If my birth mother showed up and said, "I want her back," you know, he probably killed them in one scene. Let's get a moment. 
Well, that's really interesting, Mehmet, that possibly the reason he doesn't need to take revenge is because he's lived it yeah. over and over and over. And then when they're actually standing there, he's like, well, wait, is that really what I want to like, Did it really make me feel better to imagine Simeon's head coming off his shoulders? Like, did the debt really get me anywhere? <laughs> so finish that sentence you started. If my birth mother showed up and wanted me back. The fantasy was, what would I say? Yeah. yeah. How would I prove so my loyalty to my adoptive mother? You, you know, you, you set up these crazy scenes to work through, right, stuff. To the complications, one of his motivations may have been to protect Benjamin from the bad effects of being the favorite child. So you're you're agreeing over here with Ms. Crone. You're 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 agreeing with him that that he's his interest is to shield Benjamin, right, from the same thing that happened to him. All right. So I want you to go home and think about what is the connection between this and Hanukkah. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.